Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Please turn to 1 John chapter 4, not Galatians 5. 1 John 4, that's page number 1023. If you're using the Bible there in the seat in front of you. We're taking a uh, one-week break from Galatians. If you looked in your bulletin, you see that the uh, sermon title today, which is a variation of my title, is an excursus on love. Someone asked me what an excursus was. It's like a rabbit trail, okay? It's like a little rabbit trail. I'll explain more about that in a moment. We're going to start, though, by reading some of the passage that was read to us earlier, but we'll read a little more than this. We're going to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, and then we will take a moment to ask God's blessing on our time together. So if you will, please look at what John writes beginning here in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among you, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, <clears throat> excuse me, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, I ask uh, for your blessing this morning during these random thoughts here on the topic of love. We just take one more week on... This issue, Jesus, that you said would be the mark by which all the world would know that we were truly your disciples. So I pray that you will um, take my very feeble words and use them uh, in ways that I may not even understand or realize in the various hearts of the, the people in this room. May they, may they internalize your truth, remember all that you have done for them, and go out of here encouraged and uh, reminded why it is that we love you for all of your great love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, back in the days of yore, 
like five or ten years ago, when I was first learning to uh, preach uh, and just kind of getting my uh, pattern established, uh, I began running into a problem. I would spend my week studying uh, and preparing for a sermon, and I'd be finding all these great truths and little nuggets that I wanted to share. You know, you've got all these things you spent time on, you want to pack them all into one sermon, and the time would come to actually sit down to write that sermon. And when I would do that, I would realize that many of those little truths and things I had learned along the way just simply did not fit in the sermon I was writing, given the point that I felt the author was trying to make in that particular passage of Scripture. You see, philosophically speaking, I have two primary beliefs that determine, and I've shared this before, I think, but what is actually communicated to you when I stand up here to preach, what actually goes into my sermon manuscript, the first belief is that I have to let the text speak for itself, okay? So whatever the author's point is in a given passage, I want that point to be the, the uh, thing I focus on as best I can uh, in the sermon. So if it's on love, then let's focus on love. If it's on this, let's focus on this. If it's on that, let's focus on that. And I try my best. I've not been perfect at it, but I try my best to stay true to what the author is wanting to say. The second belief is actually stolen from J. Vernon McGee. Who in here knows J. Vernon McGee? like about eight of us, all right? Uh, J. Vernon McGee, who was an old radio preacher, uh, he's long dead now, but um, he was a guy that I would listen to when I first became a Christian back in 1996. Uh, he had this program that would come on the radio called Through the Bible, and they would take you through the entire Bible in five years, okay? So five, five years, daily radio programs, you'd go through the entire Bible, he'd explain kind of all of it. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this was the most in-depth, meaty Bible study that you've ever heard, because it just wasn't. You can't, you know, it took me three years to get through Mark. He went through the entire Bible in five years. So, I mean, it's going to have its limitations by necessity. But, uh, and I know people who made fun of him, but I, I would say that there were very few people in those early days of my time as a believer that had as much impact on me as, as J. Vernon McGee, funny enough, just sitting there listening to him day in and day out, explain the the scriptures. Maybe it wasn't the most in-depth Bible teaching I ever got to hear, but it was something about his very plain, simple, down-to-earth style that I, I really appreciated. And he had a little saying for that, that he would repeat every so often on his program. And for those of you who listen, you might remember this saying. He would say, you know, you have to put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kitties can reach them. That's K-I-D-D-I-E-S, not kitties like in baby cats, okay? The kids, the children could reach them. And to this day, I still love that saying. Now, the funny thing was, if you ever listened to one of his sermons, an actual sermon that he would preach like in his own church, perhaps, uh, which I got to hear a few of over the years, his sermons were nothing like his radio program. He was very in-depth, and he could be very scholarly and knowledgeable. And I mean, he did not sound at all the same as he did on his radio program. And what I came to understand from that was that I, I believed he was probably just speaking to the level of his audience. You know, in his own church where he knew the people, he knew what they understood, what they could absorb, what they understand. Uh, he could preach at a certain level, but when he was teaching in the Through the Bible radio series, he was speaking to, well, me, right? Like a new believer who didn't, who didn't know anything, who couldn't go as fast as maybe the people in his own church could go. And so he would put the cookies on the bottom shelf where I could reach them. And uh, he just took his audience into account, and I so appreciated that and have tried to mimic that over time. So practically then what that means is that as I would sit down to, to write my sermons, you know, especially in those early days, it's still true today, but I was struggling with it more back then, and I'd have these two like philosophies, two beliefs kind of guiding me. On the one hand, I want to let the author say whatever it is the author wants to say. 
So whatever his point is, we've got to get to that and make that the focus of the sermon. And at the same time, though, I've got to take into account my audience. Where, where are they right now? And how do I get them from where they are right now to the point that the author's trying to make? And when you start thinking like that, not just in sermons, but in any area of communication, I don't care if you're doing a business presentation or something at the PTA or in your civic league, or it doesn't really matter what it is, when you kind of use those two guidelines to drive how you craft a message, you'll find that there are certain things you all of a sudden have to include, and there are other things you just you know, naturally begin to exclude, not because they're bad or they're not helpful, perhaps, just because they don't get you to the place you're trying to go with the audience that you're speaking to. And so what I'd end up having is I'd have these uh, amazing truths and thoughts you know, from my sermons that never would get said because I didn't really feel like I had time to share them in a 30 to 40 minute window. I mean, if I had all day, and I could take all day, I guess uh, I could get them all in, but uh, I saw several people nod no, and that was not encouraging. Um, but I'd have all these things just like sitting there and I would never get to be able to share it. And after a while, that started aggravating me, like kind of like as a preacher, like wanting to get to those things, wanting to be able to share some of those details, especially when we were in uh, passages of scripture for a while. And I'd have some of them just kind of sitting back there waiting, 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 and they never got communicated. And finally, I was like, I've got to find a solution to this. And this was when I started preaching smorgasbord sermons. Who in this room remembers a smorgasbord sermon that I have preached? Okay, there's like, again, about eight of us in here. You've got to be an old timer because it's been a while since I preached one of those. I uh, took the name from the meals that we would have at college right around the last week of each semester where you could tell the dining hall was trying to clear out the, the freezer. Uh, and so it would be smorgasbord night on the menu. And you'd walk in and there'd be like chimichangas next to cornbread stuffing next to fettuccine alfredo. It didn't have to make sense. It didn't have to go together, and it also depended on when you got there. If you got there first, you know, there might be a tray of something good out. If you were there like 30 minutes later, it's fish sticks. You know, like it changed. They ran out of whatever little bit they had left. And so it was smorgasbord night. Nobody was excited about that, but it was a chance to, to get rid of all this stuff, empty out the kitchen, whether or not it made sense. They just wanted it gone. And I thought about that, and I said, that's exactly what I need. I need a smorgasbord sermon where I don't have to care if it makes sense. Like, I normally try to care that my sermons make a little bit of sense. But I was like, I don't care on this one. I'm just going to put in all the things I want to say, and wherever it goes, it goes, and I can give you all my thoughts that I've been storing up. Uh, another thing I used to do with that was something called family talks. How many of you remember family talks? More of you on that one, because those were a little uh, more recent. I haven't done one in a while, though. These were kind of like smorgasbord sermons, but typically a little more applicational. And generally, I didn't manuscript them fully like I do most of my sermons. Most of my sermons are completely written out up here. Um, but those were generally not more off the cuff, more conversational. Uh, and it was just when I wanted to kind of settle in on a specific point and just talk about it for a little bit. Just as a family, believers together here within Cornerstone, something maybe in the text or whatever had happened. Uh, both of those sermon types were occasional. I, didn't, I don't think a steady diet of that for the church is healthy, but I think occasionally it works out. And they were as needed, determined by me, just as whenever I wanted to do one, I would do it. Um, well, I'm not sure if today is a smorgasbord or a family talk sermon or a talking smorgasbord sermon or whatever it is, it's something, doesn't matter. I just want to come back for a few minutes and talk about this topic of love one more time, because as we've been looking at it over these past two messages, I've just... I just can't get it off my mind, right? You know, this week uh, even, I just could not get certain thoughts and questions out of my mind. So I just want to address a few random things, whether they make sense or not, I don't know. I hope some of them will encourage you, so don't look for the most polished of presentations here. 
Uh, it is somewhat scripted, but not fully. It's kind of a little more applicational, so we'll see how it goes. But just to remind us of where we've been, I reminded us over the past two Sundays of Jesus' words in John 13, 34, and 35, where he gave the disciples a new command to love one another as he has loved them. And he said there, and this was the thing that just grips me every time I think about it, that it was by that that everyone would know that we are his disciples, right? Any unbeliever looking in at us should be able to tell that we are genuine Christians by our love for one another. Uh, I also told us that love is the antidote to letting our real and genuine freedom we have in Christ become an opportunity for the flesh. That's what Paul's addressing there in Galatians 5 that kind of led into this. He doesn't want them to go out and in the name of freedom indulge in sin. So how do you fight against that? Do you give them another law? No, you tell them to love one another. You remind them of this commandment to love. Uh, so it's the antidote. And I also hinted that love is also the antidote or the means by which we ultimately fight against the flesh in general, even apart from the issue of freedom. So what should we do, right? Well, that was easy. The application from the two weeks was we should love. And when I say that, what I mean, and I hope this was clear, is that we should love first God the Father, like Christ loved the Father. However you think of Christ loving the Father during his time on earth, what you can see of that connection and that relationship, um, that should be the model for how we love the Father. And then secondly, out of that, we should also love one another like Christ has loved us. Christ is now the standard in both areas, and that, of course, is true. I believe that. I stand by it wholeheartedly, but when I got up Monday morning, uh, last week, and I reflected on all that we had looked at over the past couple weeks, I just felt like I wanted to say a couple more things, okay? That's today's message. So what I have here are two related but separate questions that I want us to talk through for a few minutes before we partake of the Lord's table together, and I hope these questions will perhaps address some of the thoughts maybe you've had in your own heart as you have maybe thought over the last couple of messages, things that may have come to your mind or maybe just larger questions of life that you struggle with, because I think there's going to be some pieces of the things we talk about that will hit on various points. I hope it will be a blessing to you. The first question is this, and that is, what is our definition of love? We've been using the word a lot, throwing it out. It's so commonly used, I don't know that we think we need to stop and define it, but what exactly is our definition of love? And I think that that word can be particularly vague and often misused because of how our culture uh, handles that word and that idea. I mean, let's just think about it first in the general, and then I'll, I'll give you four specifics. But generally speaking, recognize that probably every person in this room misuses the word love on a regular basis. I mean, I, just the other day, I was talking about how much I love food. That was the wording I used, right? I love food. Specifically, I love Philly cheesesteaks at No Frill Grill. And I, I, can name, I can name things for you, but I won't. Uh, though I have often thought I should probably get a deal worked out with restaurants in town, because whenever I name something, inevitably I hear that somebody went and bought it and ate it and enjoyed it. So No, uh, no Frill Grill, Philly cheesesteaks, tell them I sent you. Uh, I say I love food. You hear people talk about loving sports teams. Oh, I love the Bears, or I don't really love the Bears. So I, <laughs> I love the Cubs. I don't love the Cubs either, but you hear people talk about that. Hear people talk about loving places. I just said this yesterday to someone. We we're talking about Williamsburg, and I said, I love Williamsburg. Um, I am pretty sure, and those things all just roll off our tongue so easy, don't they? But I am pretty sure that in every time I say that or anything like that, that I am misusing and maybe even abusing the word love terribly. Because the truth of the matter is I don't really love any of those things. 
Jesus defines love at one point in John 15 as the willingness to lay one's life down. Would I lay my life down for a Philly cheesesteak? <laughs> no. Would I lay my life down for Williamsburg? No, I would not. I like those things. That's all I'm saying. And when you get that, we get that in our, our conversation. I'm not trying to pick on our, our verbiage per se, other than to just show us how loosely we use these words and how almost meaningless then they become because of it. This is so much more than what we talk about in food or sports teams or places in our culture just throws the word around like it doesn't even matter. But that's a general observation. If I were to get down into specifics and say, how does our culture tend to think about the idea of love? I identified four areas that I think our culture tends to use or, or uh, define love by, and I'll just give them to you. You can add to them if you want on your own. But number one, I'd say it's emotional. When our culture thinks of love, they think of it in emotional terms. So love's just an emotion like any other emotion, like I have anger or fear or joy or you name it. It's just purely an emotion. And of course, emotions change. And so you hear people talk about how they fall into love, you know, fall in love with someone, and then later they fall out of love with someone because it's just an emotion. That's just how it works. Um, number two, they speak about love as being a familial thing. And, and this is actually biblical, by the way. You know, talking about loving family, loving your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your in-laws, or whoever the case may be. Uh, the biblical word that is specific to this point is storge. Storge is normally used in the negative in the New Testament as an example of how you know that something is wrong in someone's life. For example, in Romans 1.31, as Paul is giving the list of things that God is giving people over to, one of them in verse 31 is that they are heartless. That's the word used by the ESV. Literally, it means without family love. You can see something like the breaking down of family love in that context. This will be one of the signs of God's judgment on, on those he's giving over to their sins. So it's often used in the negative, occasionally in the positive. But our, our culture thinks of it this way. It's very common to think of family love, and it's a right and a biblical idea. So just observation. Number three, romantic love, the context of romance. Um, speaking of, of, of giving shout-outs to restaurants, I've given a shout-out two weeks in a row to a, a, a company, and here's number three, you know, Hallmark. I'm not ashamed, mostly, to tell you that I watch Hallmark movies from time to time with my wife. Uh, Ed is with me on this, so I have a, I have a friend over here uh, I, can, I can sympathize with. But, uh, you know, one of the things I observe about Hallmark particularly their, their movie division, is that the entire thing is romance. I won't actually use the phrase I have come to use for, for Hallmark movies because it's uh, not bad. It's just maybe not appropriate for this context, and it's not funny either. But I, I recognize that it is appealing particularly to women in a way that I've started to wonder is it even really healthy. I, like It started to make me think about some things because it's like all romance. It's all romance with nothing else. It's so focused on it that it, it, it like stokes that part of, of our thinking and just that I don't know that it's healthy because while romance is not bad and it's good to, to, uh, to practice romance within your marriage, uh, you know, it's not the definition of love. I, I hope you understand that, that love is so much more than romance. And then the fourth one is clearly sexual. Our culture is obsessed with sex and tends to, and you may disagree with this, but that's okay, it's my time. Um, it tends to equate the act of sex itself with being love. The act itself is somehow like equal to 
love. And while I think that sex can definitely be an expression of love, it does not equal it. That is, that is an untrue uh, connection that has been made by our culture. So these are some very common definitions, I would say misconceptions of love. Some are good, of course, like the family one, some are bad. Some maybe have a little bit of both mixed in, but what's a biblical definition of love? And I, and I can't go anywhere else than this passage here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. You see it at the very end, where we are told, and he repeats it later on in the chapter, God is love. You want to understand what love is, real, true love, the real idea of love, you have to look at God himself. Did you, uh, did you know there's only four times in the New Testament where we're told specifically that God is something? And I don't mean that God acts in a certain way. Sometimes you'll see like a phrase like God is merciful to, they're really saying God acts mercifully. It's only four times where we're actually told that God is like a noun. One is John 4.24, God is a spirit. One is 1 John 1.5, God is light. Another one, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, God is a consuming fire. And then here, we are told that God is love. Like it's a defining aspect of who he is. So I would say then that God himself is our definition of love. In other words, I cannot look to my culture to define love. Because as I tell you then to go out and love one another, how are you going to execute on that, right? Are you looking to try to generate emotions? Like I've got to feel love towards that person over there, but quite frankly, I don't like them. Are you trying to like think, you know, like do I treat them like family? Is it be romantic? That's going to be awkward. Sexual, I hope not, okay? Like, I mean, if you're misdefining the idea of love, you see where this is going to take us. It, I can't tell you to go out and love if you don't know what love is, so I have to look to God himself. And of those four, if I may pick on one in particular for a moment, I would say this is one of the main reasons why we cannot define love in terms of emotions. Because what's the problem with emotions, as I already pointed out? They change. As you think about God, does the word change come to your mind very prominently? Is God changing day to day in his response to us, depending on how we do or how we act or whatever the case may be? No. You know, I am that way, clearly. When you do things that I like, when you make me happy, I am more uh, uh, prone to love you. And when you do things that do not make me happy, things I don't like, I am less prone to love you. But God, thankfully, does not function like that. If God's love was based on emotions we would all be doomed. I hope you understand and believe that with all your heart. God's love is not emotional. God's love is volitional, meaning it is a choice. God's, or God chose to love us because that reflects who he is. And if we're going to define love properly, I think we need to reorient our minds away from those misconceptions that I identified, and you can add to the list, that's fine, and move it over to a much more God-like love, which is, I love you by choice. That just doesn't sell a lot of anniversary cards. That's the problem with that, right? It doesn't sound very exciting to be like, honey, I love you this morning by choice. When in fact, no joking aside, there's no higher love. You think about it, because if you love your spouse, you love your kids by choice, by how they act, or excuse me, by emotion and how you feel and how they respond, 
There's going to be some rough days in your house. You better love them by choice each and every day. So if we're going to uh, define love properly, that's where we need to go. He, uh, go. he also, uh, we see here in the text, is our source of love. You see that here in verse 7, love is from God. And I can say this both in a general and in a specific sense, generally speaking, the reason that you can look across all human history at every culture and find love as an idea is because we are made in the image of one God. So because all humans are made in the image of this same God who is, by definition, love, guess what you find all across human history and around the world? You find love. Generally speaking, it's true. It reflects who we are as image bearers of God. Unfortunately, as with all other aspects of the image of God, guess what we have done with it? We have distorted it and we have perverted it to the nth degree. Uh, so that's generally specifically. I would say this begins to answer the question, how? How is it then? Because I told you we're supposed to go out and love like Christ has loved others. Is that something you just muster up inside? Something you just kind of get up in the morning and decide, I'm going to love others like Christ loved today. Great for me. Let's go. Well, I mean, I think there is a, always a choice in obedience that, that's our own, but I recognize that the only way we can do this is by Christ doing this in us. Like the love we have, the source of that love has to be, has to be divine. I can't just do it. Not on my own. Not in my own power. So to love like Christ loved us is a work of God in our hearts. We need divine help. And guess where Paul's going to go next in Galatians? Walk in the Spirit. And guess what one of the things that's going to come out of that life is? Love. He's going to say this very thing when we get to it in the next few verses, that if you want to love, you want to go out and do what he's telling you to do here, you got to live your life in the Spirit. you got to walk that way. More on that later. So what is our definition of love? Well, true love, A, is defined by God himself. B, it's a choice. C, it reflects God's nature and character. And D, is it, in, it is enabled by God alone. So as we think about love, this is what we're thinking about. I just wanted that to be clear. Second question that was on my, my mind this week is why should we love? I feel like there was a part of these last two messages that sort of answered the what question. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to love. When we get into the next section of Galatians, we'll answer the how question. How are you supposed to do it? You're supposed to do it by walking in the Spirit. But the question that doesn't really get answered here is why. Why should we love? Well, I've got a couple of answers for us. First one, we should love because he first loved us. You see that here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. You know, we are, we are so desensitized to the idea that God loves us that it doesn't even register anymore. So here I am Monday morning. This was actually what started all of this, by the way. Here I am Monday morning, and uh, I'm, I'm reading in Romans. That's, what, you know, starting Romans Monday morning. And uh, as I, you know, all of Paul's letters, he begins with a little introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Normally, this, you know, make a couple more comments. In Romans, he actually gives a lot of comments. There's actually a lot of good theology in those first six verses as he defines himself in his ministry. But then he always says, to so-and-so, uh, whatever, grace and peace. You know, that's how we treat it, right? We, we've read it so many times. We've heard that verbiage so many times. It doesn't even phase us. We don't even think about it. So here I am reading, and he's like, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ. He gives all this good theology, and then he gets to verse 7. 
To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was about to move on when my mind just kind of stopped and my eyes focused back on that two section there in verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. And I was just struck with the certainty of the comment. Hey, it's to all of you who are loved by God right now. If you're loved by God, this letter is for you. There's this group there that could be identified this way. And I know I've shared this with you before several times, actually, but I'm going to do it again because we need to keep hearing it. It's the comment from J.I. Packer in his uh, book, Knowing God, on the chapter specifically on God's love, where he just drives home this idea that God's love is unlike any other love you or I will ever experience because God's love for us is always given in full knowledge of who we truly are. And I just wish there was a way we could keep that in our minds, like every day, like write it on a, like put it between our eyes, right? Write it on our, our hands, like, like the Old Testament talks about, right? Remember that God's love is given to us in full knowledge of the very worst about us. Knowing all that we truly are, he loved us still. And you have to start with that thought on the idea that God is omniscient, right? That he knows all things. And as you think about that in relation to this, then just remember that there is nothing hidden to him. You may have hidden something from everyone in your life. You may have hidden it perfectly. Past, present, whatever the case may be. And not a soul knows. God knows. I think about it in relation to the fact that God never learns Right? The only reason I can learn things is because I don't know everything. Since I don't know everything, I keep learning. I'm constantly learning. But God knows everything. He never learns. That means there never comes a point in my life where he's like, well, if I had known that about Stacy, I wouldn't have. You, you, he's never going to learn something about you. Think about that. Never. From before you were born, he knew your life perfectly. I said this not too long ago. God is never disappointed because to be disappointed indicates that you expected one thing but got something different. Okay, that happens for me because I'm not all-knowing, and so sometimes I hope things will go certain ways, and then they don't because I didn't know how it was going to turn out. But for God, that never happens. Never disappointed. He always gets exactly what he thought he would get. He knows exactly who we are. He knows everything we have done or will do. And the great truth of the gospel is that knowing all of those things, he loved us still. Remember that. Knowing all of those things, he loved us still. He loved us and went out of his way to make us his own. Packer makes the comment that God, once he set his love on us, determined that he would never be happy without us. Like he would have to have us to be happy once he set his love on us. He would have to. And we'd go to whatever links needed to make us his own. He chose to love us. If it was based on emotions, again, we would be lost because the only emotion we would ever uh, have cause God to have has to be anger, wrath. That's the only thing I could ever picture him having, an emotion I could picture him having towards us because of our sin. But he chose to love us knowing the very worst about us and sacrificed his own son to make us his own. The next time... Folks, that you are sitting there and 
whether it's because of your sin or just because of Satan or doubts or whatever comes up and you're tempted to question your salvation. I'm not against examining yourself, but I want you to come back to this. He knew the very worst about me and he loved me still. He knew the very worst about me and he loved me still. He knew exactly who I'd be before the foundation of the world. And he loved me still. You just remember that God's love for you is not like any other kind of love you have ever experienced. Secondly, I would just remind us, as we're asking the question, why should we love God? Whoops. One too many. Yoya, can you fix that? Um, Why should we love? Well, we love because we have been forgiven much. We love because we have been forgiven much. As I thought about that question, why, should we, why do we love God? These were the two passages of Scripture that came to mind, 1 John 4 and Luke 7. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole passage in Luke, but this is the story of the time Jesus was invited to go to dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. All right, so Simon the Pharisee, we don't know who this guy is other than this. Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. Jesus shows up. It's probably out in a courtyard is my guess. Uh, Jesus takes his place at the table. And as he does so, a woman walks into this dinner situation who everyone in the audience knew was a sinner, the sinner. Most likely, uh, a lot of people think Luke is being polite here by not calling her a prostitute. That's probably what she is. But we don't know that for a fact. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that in the eyes of everyone in the room, she is at the opposite end of the spectrum from where Simon the Pharisee is, right? If you've got a spectrum of righteousness, Simon's over here, he's righteous. This woman, the sinner, she is not. Polar opposites. Regardless, she comes into the setting, she gets down on her hands and knees and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She's weeping. And she dries his feet with her hair. She's kissing his feet and she anoints his feet with ointment or oil. And this is an over-the-top display of of love and gratitude for Jesus. We have no idea the context that led up to this in terms of whatever interactions Jesus had had with this woman. We just see this moment. And the Pharisee, Simon, is sitting there thinking to himself, Luke says, if this guy was really a prophet, if he really was who he said he was, he would know that this woman is the sinner and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. He wouldn't let her touch him. To which now, I'll pick up and read, Jesus responds, Simon, I have something to say to you. And just imagine the moment, right? Because if you saw this happening, right? This woman's in there weeping, wiping. Like everyone in the room must be like, oh, you see this? Like, it must have been like dead silent, awkward, right? Everybody's watching this unfold and Jesus just sitting there letting it happen. And while in the middle, he's like, hey, Simon, I got something to say to you. Uh, okay, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And again, I just picture the awkwardness of the moment, right, as everyone's probably just sitting there watching this unfold, and Jesus just throws out this quick little parable with a question at the end. Who's going to love the debt, uh, the moneylender more? The guy who was forgiven 500 or the guy who was forgiven 50? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt? And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, 
Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. How much have you been forgiven of? You know, as you think through this story, both Simon and this woman are equally sinners in God's eyes, right? Even though Jesus here mentions her many seer, uh, sins, I don't think that he's thinking of it in terms of like a, like a, a sin scoreboard. Like if God's got like some scoreboard in heaven where like names and numbers are, you know, all the sins that are adding up as we go. And he's like, oh yeah, she's clearly above you here in the sin scoreboard. I don't think he's thinking of that at all because I think both of them, I mean, my goodness, the, the Pharisee self-righteousness alone has to equate for anything the woman's done. So I don't think he's speaking about it from that perspective. I think he's speaking about it from the perspective of what they realized or understood about themselves. The woman understood that she was a sinner. She got it, her many sins. She's not denying it. She's not pretending to be something she's not. The Pharisee, on the other hand, does not recognize this. In his mind, he's way better than her, therefore being forgiven of her many sins that she clearly recognized caused her to love much, whereas the Pharisee doesn't see much need for Jesus, much less to love him. So I ask you again, have you been forgiven much? Or have you forgotten how much you have been forgiven? Have you become like the Pharisee, perhaps, over time as a believer? I mean, I'm speaking to people, some of you may have been believers for many years now, and maybe God has worked in your life and you're not who you used to be. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. But sometimes one of the dangers that comes along was that we begin to forget who we used to be. We begin to forget all that we've been forgiven of. And we just can't. If you want to know why we should love, we should love because despite our many sins, God chose to love us still and sent his son to die in our place so that we could be forgiven of all of them. And I would say that he's given us, and my shameless transition now, this table, just to remind us of those things as well. I thought, well, if there was a good week to do this, this is it. Because I want you to remember as you partake this morning that Jesus' giving of his body to be broken for us is an act of love, right? He, he's doing that out of his own choice to take your place. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it in any way. We were his enemies, we were not his friends, and yet he died for us still by taking our place on the cross, his body would be broken so that he could become our curse and we could be forgiven. And the cup represents the means by which that man Jesus paid for our many sins. So as you think back here in just a moment, I'll give you just a second here. It's not to like reflect and confess. I'm not making it penance. I just want you to remember. Just remember all that you have been forgiven of. Think about it and think about the blood of Christ spilt to pay for all of those many sins. And that means that as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are being reminded in a very tangible way of God's great love for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.